Ladies and gentlemen, recording from Los Angeles, California. Welcome to another edition of the one and only. Na 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 na. Boom 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 boom. Let's go. <laughs> on the biggest news stories in sports that's right i get hyped the fuck up let's fucking go legendary ufc ring announcer bruce buffer was kind enough to do the intro for my podcast a few years ago and let me tell you it does not fail to hype me up i'm sure you guys as sports fans appreciate it as well i mean being perfectly honest, the UFC is not my favorite sport to watch. I love the UFC, but I love all sports. So therefore, I don't I don't have a favorite sport to watch. So therefore, UFC cannot be my favorite. It's one of my favorites. You know, all the sports that I watch are my favorite to watch, if that makes sense. But let me tell you, not many things, especially in regards to sports, get me as hyped up as when Bruce Buffer is introducing the fighters in a main event on a UFC pay-per-view, whether at the Conor McGregor fight, John Jones, what you know sean o'malley whoever the the star is it it really really gets me going i i love bruce buffer so the fact that he was able to do the intro for my podcast is fucking amazing if i'm being perfectly honest ladies and germs you know what the deal is it's the sean sports podcast the greatest most interesting captivating fascinating podcast on the planet you know how we do it around here from beautiful los angeles california it is saturday october 2nd 2021 it was my 18th birthday a couple days ago so i'm not gonna lie to you i've been partying i've been having fun shout out to my guy bat sinclair i'm trying to sound like him right now but the partying will keep going tonight but to the power of two you know i like i like my butts but hey that's not the point point is partying is gonna continue tonight but meanwhile i got some time it's 6 22 p.m pacific time on october 2nd and guess what the fuck i'm gonna do I am doing the podcast because I love doing this shit. I understand that lately. Well, I have been getting back into it, you know, slowly. I would say like sporadically, kind of methodically. You know, I'm a, I'm a cunning linguist. I'm sure you could tell. But uh, let's get this show on the road. Cumero numero uno in the wise words of the Jewish prince himself, Mr. Scott Rogowski. Let's get right into it. Starting with the NFL. Let's go. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers will have Antonio Brown back for Sunday's marquee matchup against the New England Patriots. Now, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but I don't really see how this matchup is marquee. Literally, the only narrative is that it's Tom Brady playing against the Patriots for the first time since he left the team. I mean, I guess you can consider that marquee. It might be the most marquee matchup of week four of the season. But the Patriots are not a playoff team, so it's like, how the fuck is it marquee? I understand. If anything, the most marquee matchup is going to be the Los Angeles Rams and Arizona Arizona Cardinals. Both teams undefeated at 3-0 coming in. Winner is in sole possession of first place in the NFC West, which is once again looking to be the best division in the NFL. Patriots and Buccaneers, nah. I mean, it's only it's only like the soap opera narrative. Like, oh, it's Brady against his former team, Brady and Belichick. Like, are they going to shake hands? Like, are they going to suck each other off? Like, what are they going to do, you know? So uh, the team announced on Thursday that Brown has been activated from the reserve slash COVID-19 list. Ian Rappaport of the NFL Network, probably the most prominent reporter uh, covering the NFL other than Adam Schefter of ESPN, added that AB will be back on the field in week four. He was placed on the COVID list on September 23rd, which is almost two weeks ago now, making him unavailable for the team's loss last week to the Los Angeles Rams. I was out that game. Shout out to the Ramley 
you know, it's our fucking house. We're coming for we're coming for everyone's head this year. But let's get back to it. It is unclear at the moment if Brown tested positive for the virus or was deemed high, a high risk close contact of someone who did test positive. Head coach Bruce Arians told reporters on September 2nd, which is exactly a month ago, that the entire Bucks organization, including players and coaches, has been fully vaccinated. They were one of two NFL teams, along with the Atlanta Falcons, known to have reached the full 100% vaccinated mark. AB is in his second season with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Uh, at one point, very recently, he was, in my opinion, the best wide receiver on the planet. He's a seven-time Pro Bowler. He joined the team midway through last season. He had 564 yards and six touchdowns on 53 receptions between the season and playoffs last year. In the season opener against the Dallas Cowboys, he had 121 receiving yards and a touchdown in their 31-29 victory. And then he had only one catch for 17 yards the following week against the Atlanta Falcons. Who knows? He might have been feeling the effects of COVID and had a lackluster game. I'm not sure, but he's going to be back for the, for the I almost said for the Patriots, uh, for the Buccaneers, and that's going to be huge. He's a huge weapon for Antonio Brown. Fuck, for Tom Brady. <laughs> and speaking of the Bucks and Patriots game, we're not done speaking about it yet. If you haven't purchased tickets for Tom Brady's return to Gillette Stadium, then you might want to plan on having a nice night on Sunday. According to TMZ Sports, tickets for the Week 4 contest between the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and New England Patriots are averaging $1,222 on StubHub. That figure is 20% higher than the next closest game this season. That is absurd. Again, it's obviously a big occasion as Brady plays the franchise with which he won six Super Bowls in, across over 20 seasons. But the future Hall of Famer is doing his best to treat it like any other game. And that's the mentality you have to have. You can't get this moment get to your head. And Tom Brady, of all people, will not let any moment get to his head. Quote, I'm not going to necessarily reminisce, he said on his Let's Go podcast with Jim Gray. I didn't know that he had a podcast. That's awesome. Jim Gray, I love Jim Gray. He's one of the great, he's probably the greatest sportscaster of all time, you know, with interviews and all that stuff. I read his book uh, called Talking Goats, I believe it was. Shout out Jim Gray, man. I love that guy. And I knew he had a very strong friendship with Brady off of their interactions, their interviews, and, uh, you know, how he wrote about Tom Brady and their relationship in his book. But I did not know that they have a podcast together. So I will check that out. That's very cool. So Brady said on the aforementioned podcast, quote, I don't think this is the moment for that. I'll have plenty of opportunities to reminisce about my football career. None of it, none of which I really care to do right now because I'm so much in the moment. And that's what makes Tom Brady, Tom Brady. Why would he give a fuck about the whole soap opera narrative? That makes no sense. I'm not sure why he would do that. And with that said, we are transitioning to more football. An absolute legend has retired from the game. Veteran running back LaShawn McCoy will, will formally announce his retirement with the Philadelphia Eagles. Uh, after 12 NFL seasons, the 33-year-old walks away as the Eagles' all-time leading rusher at 6,792 yards after six seasons with the team. He made six Pro Bowls. Um, he made six Pro Bowls uh, and earned two All-Pro nods. And his 11,102 rushing yards are the third most ever for a player selected in the second round of the draft, according to Pro Football Reference. He signed with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers ahead of last season as they loaded up upon adding Tom Brady. Not surprisingly, though, he was not used very often as their backfield already included Ronald Jones II and Leonard Fournette. He logged only 10 carries, running for 31 yards. He also caught 15 passes for over 100 yards. In general, he's been trending in the wrong direction, you know, consistently prior to 2020. He averaged just over three yards a carry for the Bills in 2018 before they cut him the following August. He remained somewhat productive in a limited role for the Kansas City Chiefs in 2019, but his 646 yards from scrimmage were a career low until the 2021 season. Uh, but he did win the, the uh, you know a championship ring with the Chiefs, but he was inactive for Super Bowl 54. Through his first 10 years, he had 2,821 touches, the 17th most in the history of the NFL, according to Pro Football Reference. An absolutely legendary career. 
And I wish LaShawn McCoy, even though his name is not as cool as mine, <laughs> the absolute best in retirement and whatever he decides to pursue. He's probably just going to chill. I mean, shit, he's been playing in the NFL for years. Why would he do anything, you know, to like load his body up even more? That's just stupid. Let's switch gears to some baseball. We have a good amount of baseball to talk about, some drama, specifically with the Philadelphia Phillies and San Diego Padres. First, we're going to talk about the Phillies. Uh, a plethora of problems have allegedly emerged throughout the Philadelphia Phillies organization, including a, quote, toxic culture within player development, according to The Athletic. Quote, there were people, both tenured and newer employees, who no longer felt empowered to coach. Um, Matt Gelb of The Athletic wrote, Player development blamed scouting for a lack of talent and scouting blamed player development for a lack of progression. So, I mean, when you have two departments and they finger point, they don't know how to work together. That's that's what happens. I mean, it's, it's unfortunate. I, I have a very corporate uh, corporate America type job. I'm, you know, balls deep in the rat race. And this is exactly what would happen in that situation. So he reported a partnership with Driveline Baseball, which has become a, more, a very popular and trendy lately in the baseball world for its approach to talent development in recent years, proved to be an issue for the franchise. Quote, the Phillies, a team executive said, discovered the driveline culture did not embody the kind that the Phillies wanted in their farm system. Feedback was handed down and rarely traveled up. Perspectives that challenged driveline precepts were not considered valid and worse, not respected. The Phillies made dozens of staff changes, but important holdovers were asked to do things they weren't capable of doing or just did not want to because they had contempt for the person telling them telling them to do it, according to team sources. Grudges festered both ways. The driveline dynamic was representative of wider organizational uh, issues throughout the Phillies. There was a, a general lack of cohesion from top to bottom in terms of how to approach player development and what tactics to use. Quote, there was no consensus buy-in to what the Phillies were doing. They were pushing swing changes and modern pitching philosophies forward, but no one knew what direction was the right one. That's very unfortunate. He also wrote how Philadelphia's front office, quote, over-invested in technology and under, under-invested in people. And I cannot stress how that's probably the most important bit out of all the information I'm giving you right now. Over-invested in in this case, it's technology, but it doesn't matter what the fuck it is. Underinvested in people. That's a recipe for disaster. The Phillies came under scrutiny earlier this month uh, after USA Today's Bob Nightingale reported advocates for minor leaguers was looking into allegations the team reprimanded, mi- reprimanded minor leaguers who showed solidarity with peers demanding better pay and working conditions. Harry Marino, executive director of Advocates for Minor Leaguers, said he had he had heard of, quote, backlash and, quote, some troubling reports after some Phillies minor leaguers wore wristbands that read hashtag fair ball. Phillies president of baseball operations, Dave Dombrowski, told Nightingale that, quote, to my knowledge, no player got in trouble for this, though the wristbands had been addressed with the players. On Wednesday, the Phillies announced the hiring of Preston Mattingly as their new director of player development. Hopefully he will steer the ship. Mattingly has a tall task on his hands. In addition to helping reform the issues laid out by Gelb, he'll have to replenish a farm system that Bleacher Report ranked 27th following the 2021 MLB draft. That is not good uh, at all. So, um, yeah. Let's see, my computer's at 8%. I could keep it going a little bit. Uh, don't worry, the podcast, it'll, it'll be a full podcast. I just have one charger here but for my phone and computer. My phone needs to charge too. I've got a very important uh, event, very exclusive, private event in Hollywood coming up in about an hour and a half. So until then, I'm doing the podcast. The NFL did not forget about Dre. On Thursday, the NFL announced the Super Bowl 56 halftime show at SoFi Stadium here, very close to me in Inglewood, California. It will feature... And I, I'm warning you, trigger warning. This is this is nuts. Dr. Dre, Eminem, Snoop Dogg, Kendrick Lamar, and Mary J. Uh, Blige. Don't know who that is, but forget about her. <laughs> we got we got Kendrick, Snoop, Eminem, and Dre. That's that. I mean that is, that is as stacked of a Super Bowl halftime show that I have ever seen. It includes performers who have a combined 
43 Grammys and 19 number one Billboard albums. That is absolutely absurd. I mean, yo, I don't think the NFL has ever went harder for a halftime show than this. Super Bowl halftime shows often feature multiple artists with surprise guest appearances, but The Weeknd put on a solo show last season. Shakira and Jennifer Lopez were the Super Bowl halftime show hosts the previous year. California will definitely be well represented at the Super Bowl with Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, and Lamar taking the stage. Eminem and Blige are two of the most popular musicians of their generation and will add even more star power to what will surely be a memorable show. Honestly, my friend has tickets to the Super Bowl and he was telling me that he would want, because I'm a salesman by trade, he was telling me that he wants me to sell the tickets. But yo, I mean, with this kind of lineup, with the Super Bowl being in Los Angeles at SoFi Stadium, yo, I might just buy the tickets from that motherfucker myself and go. I mean, shit. That's a crazy lineup right there. Now let's switch gears to some MMA. This guy just never learns. I'm warning you, this next story, you know, it's not not for all people. You know, it contains some disturbing information, I would say. So there's trigger warning, Skip, I would say maybe five minutes if you don't want to hear this. A security guard at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas made the 911 call last week to report possible domestic violence involving UFC star John Jones and his fiance. According to TMZ Sports, the security guard told the dispatcher, quote, we've got a possible DV call, domestic violence call, female is bleeding from the nose and mouth. Jones, to no one's surprise, was later arrested and charged with misdemeanor domestic battery and felony tampering with a vehicle, the latter of which was damaged after apparently John Jones decided to smash his head into a cop car while getting arrested, resulting in more than $5,000 worth of damage. I mean, shit, I would low-key pay to see John Jones headbutt a police car, and it looks like John Jones won that fight. The security guard said, but, you know, going back to, this is a serious topic, so I don't want to joke around too much, but it is a Sean Sports podcast. We do joke around here, but let's get back to it. The security guard said that while the woman wanted to get her belongings from the hotel room and had a security escort, she refused to go back in the room. She then received first aid, but refused any further medical attention. The woman also did not make any allegations against Jones, but it was pretty obvious what the fuck happened. The woman did tell police, however, that Jones was in a bad mood upon returning to the room after a night out at a strip club. Following his arrest, Jones posted the following on his Instagram story per TMZ Sports, which read, quote, I have way too much trauma to consume alcohol. My brain simply can't handle it anymore. Now is the time to work harder than ever. So you would think that this is it for John, but he has been getting out of trouble for as long as I can remember. I mean, he was in Las Vegas at the time of his uh, at the time of his arrest because, oh, excuse me, this time he was in Vegas uh, at the time of his arrest because his memorable 2013 fight against Alexander Gustafson got inducted into the UFC Hall of Fame. Uh, he's 34 years old. He's widely regarded as, as one of the greatest UFC fighters of all time with two UFC light heavyweight title reigns to his credit. He has an overall record of 26-1, and one, which is unheard of in MMA, especially if you're in the UFC. His lone loss was uh, due to disqualification, so he didn't actually lose any fights technically. And he has won no contest as well. Uh, yeah, his lone loss was a 2009 disqualification against Matt Hamill. Uh, his most recent bout came at UFC 247 last year when he beat Dominic Reyes by unanimous decision. That was a close fight. You know, many people thought Reyes won. Prior to his arrest, Jones said he had gotten up to 255 pounds and was trying to reach 270 in order to compete for the UFC heavyweight title, which is currently obviously held by the boogeyman himself, Francis Ngannou. Excuse me. That's so John Jones. I hope he really, I hope he figures shit out for himself. I really do. Let's switch gears back to some baseball. This is back to sports. Pitcher Adam Wainwright and the St. Louis Cardinals have agreed to another extension through the 2022 MLB season, according to the St. Louis Post Dispatch. The three time All Star signed a one year, $8 million deal with the Cardinals for 2021. 
His return will extend his tenure in St. Louis for 18 seasons. He's now 40 years old. Retirement seemed a logical outcome for the right-hander when the Cardinals playoff run comes to an end. But physically, he says he has plenty left in the tank. I mean, in 32 appearances, he's 17-7 and with a 3.05 ERA and 3.65 FIP per fan graphs. According to Brooks Baseball, neither Wainwright's four-seam fastball nor his sinker is averaging 90, mile, 90 miles an hour, which is very low velocity, not velocity, velocity in modern baseball. Despite that, though, opposing hitters only have a 380 expected slugging percentage and a 273 weighted on base average against him. According to Baseball Savant, they are very good for advanced baseball metrics and stats. Uh, as the Cardinals caught fire during the stretch run, Wainwright was a key figure in their success. I mean... Uh, I mean, he was 10-1 and one with a 2.28 ERA, with opponents hitting 209, 252, 319 against him during his final 14 starts of the year. And St. Louis, out of those 14 starts, went 13-1. and one. The only loss was a shutout against the Brewers led by Corbin Burns on August 17th. So they literally got shut down the entire game in, the, in their only loss out of his last 14 starts. That's how good he's been. In August, Cardinals manager Mike Schilt compared Wainwright to franchise legend Bob Gibson, saying, quote, he expected to dominate Mr. Gibson. Wayno expects to go out and dominate. Wayno expects to go nine. Wayno expects to go deep in a game. Wayno expects to make pitches when he needs to. Wayno expects to get it done. It's that simple. Very Max Scherzer-like, I would say. And it's great to expect all those things, but people can say anything they want. He creates a high standard, which is a great start, but then he does all the work that leads, leads up to being able to satisfy those standards. So, I mean, he talks to talk and he walks to walk, essentially. So with, Rain, with Wainwright coming back, St. Louis' starting rotation is largely set for next year. Miles Mikolas, Carlos Martinez, Jack Flaherty, and Dakota Hudson are all either signed or under team control. And left-hander Matthew Libertor is the team's number two prospect. He figures to factor in as well. So this is huge. Um, so there's going to be one more year of Yadi and Wayno, as Yadier Molina has already also signed an extension for 2022. So, But that will probably be their last year. I mean, let's be honest, they're both over 40 years old. Both spent their entire career with the St. Louis Cardinals. We'll see if Albert Pujols We'll join them on that for a while tour. Hopefully not. I love him with the Dodgers. Let's switch gears to some NBA. The next revolution of the ever-spinning Ben Simmons trade saga has arrived. October 1st marks the date that the second 30, 25% of Simmons' salary for the 2021-22 season, roughly $8.25 million, is due to the All-Star guard. But the Philadelphia 76ers do not intend to pay Simmons on Friday, league sources told Bleacher Report. He already received 25% of his salary for the season, the second of a five-year $177 million agreement that he signed back in 2019. And the October 1st payment was intended to be the subsequent, subsequent installment of his pay. Philadelphia views Simmons' refusal to report to training camp as not fulfilling the terms of his contract. In dialogue with league office personnel and players at union officials, the Sixers appear to be within their rights to withhold that lucrative check. And it seems like both sides are petty. They should just trade him and Ben should just report and you know hope, for, hope to get traded. So both sides... Are being very dramatic in turn there have been growing whispers this week among nba sources with knowledge of the situation that simmons could respond by actually reporting to philadelphia in the coming days but maintaining that he is injured and unable to compete i mean how are they going to prove that he's not injured they kind of can't simmons has had noted knee and back injuries in the previous two seasons so he could always claim that multiple team executives contacted by bleacher report have expressed concern about the precedent simmons simmons's holdout could set for future star players already under long-term contracts honestly Kawhi leonard did the same shit so i'm not i don't think that ben simmons is doing anything new with this uh so the sixers first preseason game is in toronto on monday and there's a, a belief held in league circles that simmons may even rejoin the sixers prior to that game how that would be how that would be received by teammates with the whole saga and staffers remains to be seen but at this juncture it appears no trade conversations between the sixers and rival teams are in any kind of advanced stages they're you know probably preliminary talks and discussions but nothing serious 
Quote, we are in training camp with all with our full roster, said one assistant GM of, of a team that held negotiations with the Sixers this offseason. Only Philly is concerned about a trade right now. So seems like they just need to figure it out. I mean, Ben doesn't want to budge. You know, it's about who's bluffing. Who's really bluffing more? Is Ben willing to not take that 8.25 million? You know, he could just take it, pretend to be injured, even play once in a while and still, you know, request a trade. I'm sure he would get traded if they can find a suitor. But the thing is, Daryl Morey doesn't know how to make fair trades. He tries to fucking fleece everyone. He, he wanted... What did he want? He wanted, I think it was James Weissman. Um, what was it? James Weissman, Jordan Poole, and like three first round picks for, for, or for, or no, it was James Weissman, Draymond Green, and, and three first round picks from the Warriors for Ben Simmons. I mean, shit, come on. Ben Simmons is an all star guard, but he can't shoot. And shit, that's, that's too much for Simmons, in my opinion. Switching gears back to Tom Brady. Coming off an impressive 2019 season that included an appearance in Super Bowl 54, the San Francisco 49ers reportedly caught the eye of Tom Brady during the offseason as he was making the rounds in free agency. Obviously, ultimately, he signed, he signed with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in Florida. Appearing on WEEI's Merloni and Faria show, ESPN's Seth Wickersham said the Niners were Brady's top choice in free agency. I guess they didn't want Brady. Wickersham noted San Francisco's coaching staff did, quote, extensive work on Brady, but felt they were, quote, better off sticking with Jimmy Garoppolo. What a bad decision that was. So they have now passed on Tom Brady twice. That is insane. Wickersham has been making the media rounds this week in support of his new book, It's Better to Be Feared, about Brady, Bill Belichick, and the New England Patriots, Patriots from 2001 through 19. So he obviously knows a lot about the Patriots. Per Connor Roche of Boston.com, Wickersham wrote in the book that Brady contacted former teammate Wes Welker, who has been the Niners wide receivers coach since 2019, in the aftermath of Super Bowl 54, to let him know he wanted to play in San Francisco, saying, quote, in an excerpt from the book, Brady told Welker that there would be no free agency tour, no bidding war, full step. He would end his career where he, his love of football began in scarlet and gold, allowing his parents to drive to his games for the first time since the 1990s if the 49ers wanted him. But I guess the fucking 49ers did not want him. Per Wickersham, 49ers head coach Kyle Shanahan and each of the team's offensive assistants watched all of Brady's throws from the 2019 season to provide their evaluations. According to the book, the 49ers coaches merely liked Brady's film and concluded that Brady was only marginally better than Garoppolo at that stage of both men's careers. I mean, at the time, it wasn't a very unreasonable assessment when the 49ers made it. He was 42 at the time. He had lowest completion percentage of his career since 2013 at 60.8 and the fewest touchdown passes since 2006 with only 24. That does not include, obviously, the 2008 season when he tore his ACL in week one. Garoppolo was much younger at 28 years old, you know, 14 years younger. He was in his first full season as a starting quarterback. He completed almost over 69% of his passes for almost 4,000 yards and almost 30 touchdowns. So, um, you know, you might say that they made the wrong decision, but at the time that was looking like the right decision. I mean, how can you say otherwise? You can't. I mean, you know, they, it actually made sense to me. Switching gears to baseball, huge blow for the Dodgers. Los Angeles Dodgers starting pitcher Clayton Kershaw said Friday his chances of pitching in the playoffs are, quote, not looking great after leaving his final start of the 2021 season with inflammation in his elbow and forearm. Kershaw, who was removed from the Dodgers' ultimate 8-6 win over the Milwaukee Brewers in the second inning, said he will receive further medical testing in the, quote, next couple days, but he's concerned about the potential of missing a deep postseason run, saying, quote, haven't quite wrapped my head around all that yet. The biggest thing was I just wanted to, I, the biggest thing was I just wanted to be part of this team going through October. This team is special. You saw it tonight. I've known that. I know what that we're going to do something special this year. And I wanted to be a part of that. I mean, Kershaw is ultimate competitor. He's a legend. Kershaw, if you don't know, was already on the injured list from early July through mid-September because of the same injury. He pitched well upon his return, giving up only two earned runs across over nine innings and starts against the Arizona Diamondbacks and Cincinnati Reds. But he struggled in a rematch with the D-backs last, last Saturday, allowing three earned runs in 4.1 innings and allowed three runs in 1.2 innings before being removed 
from Friday's game against the Brewers. Quote, obviously when Clayton has to come out of a game, it doesn't bode well. Dodgers manager Dave Roberts said, what that means, we just don't know enough right now, but where we're, where we're at in the schedule with what's left of the season, just not too optimistic right now. Kershaw's potential absence for the playoffs also raises questions about his future with the Dodgers. He's scheduled to become a free agent at, at this season's end because his contract that was at three years, 93 million, is expiring. He's now 33 years old, still has a few years for sure. Uh, the Texas native was drafted by the Dodgers in 2006 and has spent his entire MLB career with the team since reaching the big leagues in 2008. His resume includes eight all-star selections, three NL Cy Young Awards, and the 2020, the coveted 2020 World Series title. While his teammates get prepared for a championship defense that may not include the veteran left-hander, he was not prepared to take a deep dive into his, into his off-season plans last night, saying, quote, my future is going to take care of itself. I'm not really worried about that right now. I really wanted to be a part of the moment right now, and I wanted to be with this group going through October. That was my only focus this year. The Dodgers still have an absolutely amazing playoff rotation that led by Max Scherzer, followed by Walker Buehler, Julio Arias, and Tony Gonsolin, but losing his longtime ace, who posted a 2.93 ERA with 37 strikeouts in over 30 innings during last year's playoff run, is still a huge setback. It's looking like the Giants will win the division, but the Dodgers will probably host the Cardinals in a one-game wildcard game uh, next Wednesday at Dodger Stadium. With that, I'm going to transition to more Buccaneers. It's been Buccaneer Central on this podcast. Tampa Bay Buccaneers tight end Rob Gronkowski has been ruled out for Sunday night's game against the New England Patriots and could miss several more games, according to Adam Schefter of ESPN. According to Schefter, Gronk suffered multiple fractured ribs last Sunday and that threatened to sideline him for multiple weeks. Initial x-rays were clean, but follow-up MRIs were not. We held out hope all week, but he'd be ready, said one source. He's a different breed. It's looking like he won't be. He was hurt Sunday against the Los Angeles Rams, though x-rays were negative. He sat out the 2019 season, but appeared in all 16 games for the Bucs last year. He will go down as one of the best tight ends in history. He's a four-time Super Bowl champion, four-time All-Pro, and five-time Pro Bowl Pro Bowler, who has five seasons with double-digit touchdowns, touchdown catches, including when he had led the NFL with 17 touchdowns during the 2011 season. Um, so yeah, Gronk is a beast. He's really a different beast. So if he's going to be out for a few weeks, you know, you absolutely know, you absolutely know that the injury is legit. Let me see what my computer is at. It is at 5%. My phone's at 49%. So with that, ladies and germs, I am going to plug my charger into this computer because I still need to look at week four of the NFL season and give my picks. I don't know what I did with my week three picks. I know there were a few games that surprised me, so I don't think I was that uh, accurate, but I will make sure not to lose these picks. I'm going to you know, type them in a computer as well as write them down. I can't pick the Thursday night game because the Bengals already beat the Jaguars. 24 to 21. Let's just go through that real quick before we go to the next story. Trevor Lawrence continues to struggle. I mean, not a bad game, but 17 of 24, over 200 yards at 204, but no touchdowns. Still no interceptions. James Robinson, decent game, 18 carries, 78 yards, over four yards a carry, two rushing touchdowns. But Trevor Lawrence on the ground, eight carries, 36 yards, four and a half yards a carry, more than the running back and a rushing touchdown as well. But he did have 10 less carries than, than said running back. And the kicker, what did the kicker do? Matthew Wright, no field goals, but three points total, extra points. And for the Bengals, Joe Burrow, looking a lot better than Trevor Lawrence. The LSU-Clemson rematch went 25 of 32 for 348 yards, two touchdowns, and no interceptions. Joe Mixon, not a bad game. 16 carries, 67 yards, just over four yards a carry, and a rushing touchdown. The Bengals, don't look now, but they're 3-1 and one on the year. The Jaguars fall to 0-4, one of the worst teams in the NFL. And their kicker, he went one for two, you know, missed one, but six points total, and he made a 35-yarder. So that's the Thursday night game. Um, now I'm going to switch gears back to some baseball. Let's see how we're doing on time. Coming up on uh, 28 minutes, that is more than cool. I would say this is a perfect length. We got one more story after this, and then we got uh, week four of the NFL season. 
The San Diego Padres will reportedly fire manager Jace Tingler after falling short of expectations by missing this year's MLB playoffs. The Padres were looking like world beaters. Uh, They beat the Dodgers early in the year. The the fans were talking shit. The team was talking shit. The media was talking shit. You know, everybody was talking mess. But that's why you don't talk shit in April or whatever the fuck it was, May, June. You talk shit in September, October, and the Padres will miss the playoffs. What a collapse. I mean, uh, everyone expected them to be winning the division, if not the Dodgers. But it's been the Giants that really... Uh, have been playing like the Padres were expected to play. The Padres, you know, they look like the Padres. I mean, they um, they were widely considered to be better this year than last year, have a better team, especially after acquiring Hugh Darvish and Blake Snell. Snell lately has really picked it up, but overall this year has been pretty lackluster for him. Darvish is solid, but overall the Padres just kind of uh, failed to meet expectations this year. So MLB Network's John Heyman reported the news Saturday ahead of the Padres' second to last game of the season. Um, they actually, the Padres beat the Giants today, and that... If the Giants won, they would have clinched the National League West, breaking the Dodgers' nine-in-a-row nine streak of winning the NL West. So the Dodgers, they do still have to win today, though, against the Brewers to stay alive. And then the result needs to go in their favor in the regular season finale tomorrow against the Brewers. Same thing, same goes for the Padres. So right now, the Giants are two games ahead of the Dodgers. If the Dodgers win today, it is cut to one game with one game left. And then if the same thing happens again, if the Dodgers win tomorrow and the Giants lose tomorrow again, then the two teams are tied with the same record to end the season. And a 163rd divisional tiebreaker will be played in San Francisco because they head-to-head have one more win against the Dodgers than the Dodgers do against the Giants, respectively. Uh, But again, the Dodgers need to win today, and then they need the Giants to lose tomorrow, and they need to win tomorrow. That's only to tie the division and force a tiebreaker in San Francisco, I believe, you know, beginning of next week, with the loser hosting the St. Louis Cardinals, most likely, almost certainly, in the wildcard game. And that's, you know, you lose that, you're out. So the fact that both teams have over, have over 105 wins and one of them can potentially lose in the wild card round is absurd. The format needs to be changed. But going back to the Padres, the 40-year-old helped guide the San Diego Padres to the postseason during the COVID-19 pandemic. The shortened season, which was the first time that the franchise made the playoffs since 2006. So honestly, I feel like they should give Tingler another chance. But there have been rumblings, and I have talked about it on the show, about how there, there's been chemistry and kind of culture issues, just like... You know, toxic culture, just like the Phillies, just not in player development, but amongst the players and the manager. Uh, so if that's the case, you know, he needs to go. But uh, that achievement proved little in the way of job security because ownership in the front office made it clear that, that more would be required this year. I mean, they made the playoffs last year. They made the National League Division Series. They were they were World Series contenders coming into the year. And they were World Series contenders for, uh, you know, several months into the season. But they absolutely collapsed since the All-Star break. I mean, they, they have, I've never seen a fall from grace like this, to be honest, in baseball. Um, general manager A.J. Preller demonstrated his typical aggressiveness in acquiring Hugh Darvish, Blake Snell, Joe Musgrove, Keon Kela, and Hassan Kim during the offseason. While the Dodgers were still widely favored to win the NL West, they appeared to have genuine competition in the form of the Padres. But like I said, instead of the Padres, it's been the Giants this year. The two teams met for a three-game series in mid-April, and it had a playoff feel as the first game went, 12, went to 12 innings, and the second ended 2-0. When San Diego and LA met again four days later at Dodger Stadium for a four-game set, the Padres won three and Tatis hit five home runs. It looked like a you know a neck neck and neck battle for the National League West was on, uh, but again it came from the Giants instead. They clinched the playoff spot on September 13th. Uh, the Padres, on the other hand, were eliminated from postseason contention with a 10-8 loss to the Atlanta Braves on September 25th. "Quote: We did not reach our goal this year," third baseman Manny Machado said, who surprisingly is being involved in trade rumors. I don't think they should trade Machado, but that's where they're at. We're going to come back next year hungry or we fell short. That's all that matters. And we're all down about it. We were expecting something. It didn't happen. Blaming what what, what, ran, went, what went wrong on Tingler would be misguided, in my opinion. 
Tatis had shoulder problems all season. Snell, Chris Paddock, and uh, Dennison Lament missed time. All three of those. That's like you know a bulk. That's like the bulk of the rotation, just not including Musgrove and uh, you Darvish. The catcher position was a black hole as both Luis Campusano and Victor Caratini finished with negative WAR. Negative WAR per Fangraphs. Uh, the Athletics' Dennis Lynn called it quote the most disappointing season in team team history. Pitching coach Larry Rothschild was axed in August. San Diego let go of farm director Sam Gini or Gini with his contract due to expire and reassigned scouting director Mark Connor. That led many to wonder whether Tingler would be next. While quickly quashed, the dugout argument between Machado and Tati summed up a period in which the Padres season went off the rails, absolutely plummeted. The San Diego Union Tribune's Kevin AC reported it was also emblematic of, quote, one of the Padres' most pressing issues. Uh, so here we go. Multiple people inside the organization said the situation with Tatis has been building for weeks as the 22-year-old has grown increasingly frustrated with the team's postseason chances slipping away and his being unable to lift the Padres on his shoulders. He was talked to by a veteran player about his brooding brooding on at least one occasion before Saturday. There are differences of opinion among some of the team's on-field personnel, but one thing virtually everyone agreed on is the hours after Saturday's mini uh, brouhaha was that it was the culmination of an issue a stronger manager would have taken care of weeks ago. So it seems like despite the fact that Tatis and Machado had that argument that night. The general consensus is that if they had a better manager who knew how to deal with players better, that it would not have been an issue at all that night and it would have been resolved weeks prior. AC also noted that Tingler's close relationship with Preller led some players to question whether the line between the manager and the front office had become too blurred and whether you know he represents the players or the front office. Experience is not a prerequisite for success in, for MLB managers. Dave Martinez is the most recent example of that as... Uh, In his second season, he led the Washington Nationals to their first ever World Series title just two years ago in 2019. Alex Cora won a World Series with the Boston Red Sox the the year before that in 2018 in his first year as manager. Dave Roberts has three National League pennants and a World Series championship through only five full seasons with the Dodgers. So uh, given that, I I think they should give Tingler one more year or at the very least half a year because, I don't know, I feel like He's kind of the scapegoat. You know, oftentimes the manager is the scapegoat. Speaking of, the Dodgers, the Dodgers are currently up 3-1 after two innings against the Brewers. Let's see the scoring plays. One run on one hit for the uh, Brewers. Three runs on two hits for the Dodgers. Let's see. The Brewers actually scored first with Yelich grounding out to the second base to Muncie. Eduardo Escobar took third and Willie Adamas scored in the top of the first inning. But then Justin Turner in the bottom of the first hit a three-run shot to left field, scoring Max Muncie and Trey Turner to give the Dodgers a 3-1 lead. So that's that really makes things interesting because the Dodgers win. It's down to a game with one game left tomorrow. And like I said, if the Dodgers win tomorrow, if they win today, if the result holds today and they win tomorrow and the Giants lose tomorrow, then there will be a 163rd game. And that would be the second time the Dodgers have to play one in four years, as they did so in 2018 against the Colorado Rockies. That game was at Dodger Stadium, though, as they had they, as they uh, beat the Rockies more head-to-head. Uh, man, it, what a fall from grace for the Rockies. I mean, they were one, one game away from winning the National League West uh, three years ago, and uh, now, you know, most of the Nolan Arenado's gone. Trevor Story's going to be gone after this year. Charlie Blackman is still there. Uh, but the team just absolutely collapsed since then. I mean, I'm not sure. I think they had a decent 2019. I don't think they made the playoffs, but 2018, they were looking like a very solid uh, playoff contender. So now switching gears to some college football before we move on to uh, week four of the... This fucking pen doesn't work. Before we move on to... Fuck. Pardon my uh, profanity and delay but let's get into it huge upset today number three oregon was upset uh was upset today in a 31 to 24 overtime loss to the unranked stanford cardinals i believe that's her name 
Oregon star defensive end Kayvon Thibodeau, a preseason All-American, was penalized for targeting and ejected during the final two minutes of the game. He'll miss the first half of their next game against Cal on October 15th. I guess that's the corresponding punishment. Cardinal quarterback Tanner McKee was outstanding with 230 yards and three touchdowns, including the two biggest scores of the game. After a defensive holding penalty that gave Stanford the ball on Oregon's two-yard line with no time left on the clock, McKee found Elijah Higgins in the end zone to force overtime. That was insane. In the extra period, McKee orchestrated a six-play drive that ended with a touchdown pass to John Humphreys to take the lead. Stanford's defense stopped Oregon in four downs on the very next possession to seal the huge upset win. Oregon trailed by 10 before at halftime before rallying back in the second half to take the lead. Oregon quarterback Anthony Brown was held to only 186 yards and threw an interception, but he did add two rushing touchdowns. So a huge, huge upset for the Stanford Cardinals. Now let's look at week four. Let me give you guys my picks to close out this episode of Sean's Sports Up. So obviously the Bengals beat the uh, Jaguars, but we have more to talk about. We got the Detroit Lions and the Chicago Bears. Now uh, this one's pretty easy. The Bears are, one, this is an NFC North matchup. The Bears are one and two. The Lions are 0 and three. The Bears are the home team. They're the better team. I'm going with the boys in Chicago. Chi-Town, let's go. Here's a tough one. The Cleveland Browns at the Minnesota Vikings. The Browns are 2-1. and one. The Vikings are 1-2. and two. Let me look at the, the spread. I like uh, looking at the spread because um, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see curious to see what they say about the Browns and Vikings game. Let's find it. Uh, Brown, Br- the Browns are minus 2.5. That's what I would say. Maybe minus 3 at the most, but the Vikings are the home team. And they're, despite the fact they're 1-2, being they're one and two, technically under 500, they're still a playoff team, potential playoff team for sure. But I'm going to go with the Browns on this one. Odell Beckham Jr. is coming back. Here's another fairly tough one. The Houston Texans, you know, are looking better than a couple, you know, last year and the year before. They're one and two, though. They play at the Buffalo Bills. I would think the Bills are like minus seven, minus eight. Let's check that out. They're minus six. Whoa, wow, wow. The Bills are minus 16 and a half against the Texans. I would low-key put money on the Texans. I do not think the Bills will win that game by more than 16 points. But that's just me. But overall, Buffalo obviously wins that game. Next up, here's an interesting one too. The Kansas City Chiefs, who have been perennial Super Bowl contenders for the last few years, have struggled to start the year. They're one and two, uh, and they play the Philadelphia Eagles on the road, who are also one and two. But I would, I would guess the Chiefs are like minus three. They're minus six and a half. That might be a little much, but obviously KC, I think, will win this game. They'll bounce back. Next up, a huge NFC West matchup between between the one and two Seattle Seahawks at the two and one San Francisco 49ers. I think based on how these teams have played and the fact that the Niners are home, they have to be the favorite. And let's see if they are. Where the fuck are the Niners at? I don't see them. Where are the Niners at? Niners and Seahawks. I don't. Oh, yeah. Okay. The Niners are minus three. That's fair. Minus two and a half, minus three. The Seahawks, again, despite being one and two, we're literally only three weeks, three weeks into the season. Um, you know, you can't say, oh, the Seahawks are under, under 500. We've played three games. You know, they've lost two out of three so far, but they'll bounce back to the fucking Seahawks. Next up, the 2-1 and one Tennessee Titans against the 0-3 New York Jets. This one's obvious. Uh, you know, Zach Wilson has, start, has struggled to start off his NFL career. This one is painfully obvious. It is uh, definitely the uh, Titans that will beat the... Jets. Sorry, a bit of a lag. Am I still recording? I need to I need to check. I can't even tell. Yeah, I'm approaching 40 minutes. Next up, here's a tough one too. The Indianapolis Colts at 0-3 against the Miami Dolphins at 1-2. Even though the Colts are 0-3, they're one of those teams that again, it's only three games in. Like, yes, they lost three games to start the season, but you know, they're the Colts at 0-3 are not as bad as the Jets at 0-3. That's like the Colts would blow the Jets the fuck out, you know? 
Uh, the Dolphins, though, are the home team. I'm going to have to go, go with them. Again, look, they're minus two and a half. So despite the fact that the Colts are winless, they're not big underdogs at all. But I do think the Dolphins will win the game. Here's a pretty tough one. Two one and two teams, the Washington football team at the Atlanta Falcons. Uh, I just think Washington is, is a bit of a better team, slightly better. I'll give them a slight edge. And that's reflected by the spread. Washington is minus one and a half. I think that's spot on, maybe minus two at the most, but not more than that. So I'm going with the Washington football team to bring their record up to two and two. Let's see what we got next. The New York Giants at the New Orleans Saints. This one's obvious. It's going to be the Saints. I mean, even though James Winston has struggled lately after his insane first game, you know, strong, throwing five touchdowns in the first game, struggled since then. The Saints are two and one. They're playing in New Orleans. The Giants are one of the worst teams in the NFL at 0-3. Uh, the spread, though, let's see. The Saints are it's minus seven and a half. I mean, yeah, I would not put money on the Giants. The Saints will probably win by at least a touchdown. Here's a tough one, though. The 3-0 Carolina Panthers. I did not think they would be 3-0 to start the year against the 2-1 Dallas Cowboys in Dallas. Man, this is a tough one. I would give the edge to the Cowboys, and that is reflected by the spread. Even though the Panthers are undefeated and the Cowboys have lost to the Buccaneers. Mind you, in a very close game during you know the first game of the season, Dak Prescott is better than Sam Darnold. Um, you know, you got Zeke against Christian McCaffrey. McCaffrey was probably the better running back by a little bit. Both are elite, obviously. But I'll just go with the Cowboys. They're the home team. I'm going to go with them. Here's a good one. This is the marquee matchup. The 3-0 Arizona Cardinals at the 3-0 Los Angeles Rams. Winner is in sole possession of first place in the NFC West after uh, week after four weeks. The Rams are minus four and a half. I think that's fair. Uh, you know, it's not disrespectful. The Cardinals are a very solid team. Very solid team. Kyler Murray is an MVP candidate for sure, potentially. Matthew Stafford might be the front runner for MVP the way he's been playing. But the Rams, they're at home. They're looking like world beaters. I'm going to go with them. They're my team. I'm going to ride with them. Here's a tough one. The 2-1 Baltimore Ravens at the 3-0 Denver Broncos. Again, just like the Colts, just like the Colts, uh, th- despite being 0-3 or not, indic- the record is not indicative of how good they are. The same applies in the other direction for the Denver Broncos. Yes, they're 3-0, but they've played three of the worst teams in the NFL uh, the first three weeks of the season. And that's definitely evening out here in a week four matchup against the Ravens. Uh, let's see what the spread says. Uh, honestly, it wouldn't surprise me if the Broncos are favored, but but let's check it out. I don't see this matchup at all. Yo, yo, the Broncos are favored. Wow. The Broncos are, I've never seen this line either. They're, they're at my, or the spread. They're minus 0.5. So it is literally dead even, but they're giving the tiniest of edges uh, to the Broncos over the Ravens. That is very surprising. The Ravens made the playoffs last year. They have Lamar Jackson. Yes, the Broncos are undefeated and at home, but I would definitely think that the Ravens would be favored. And low-key, I might hammer the Ravens. I think they win this game easily. But we got one more good one. It's a divisional matchup. The other surprising 3-0 team, Las Vegas Raiders against the Los Angeles Chargers. This is a very good game. The Chargers are 2-1. Justin Herbert is one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL already, despite being only in his second year. And look at that. The Chargers are favored at minus 3.5, despite having a loss on the year and the Raiders being 3-0. So kind of the reverse logic of the Broncos and... Ravens, but I guess you know you can make the argument here that the Chargers are at home and the Ravens are not at home in their respective matchups. So I'm gonna go with the Chargers. My picks are Bears, Browns, Bills, Chiefs, Niners, Titans, Dolphins, Washington, Saints, Panthers, Rams, Ravens, and Chargers. Obviously, can't pick on the Jaguars, uh, Bengals game because that was the Thursday night game and it is Saturday evening right now. But ladies and gentlemen, what an episode it's been! It's been 43 minutes. It's truly been a pleasure. Uh, if you enjoy the show, please feel free to leave leave a five star review on iTunes. 
follow Sean Spotify, follow me on Instagram at Sean Hardo. That's my name, Sean, S-E-A-N, hard, H-A-R-D, and though, T-H-O, one word, Sean Hardo, kind of like Jack Harlow, Sean Harlow, Sean Hardo, you fuck with it, I fuck with it. I'll see you guys on the next one. And with that, I'm out.